Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye, and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Mina Alorebi, a 2015 Yale World Fellow and a journalist. Mina, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Emma. So tell me, what was it that made you want to become a journalist? A couple of things. Primarily, I love stories, and I always wanted to be a storyteller. Um, And secondly, I was always interested in politics, but I never wanted to be personally involved in politics. So it gave me a way to be uh, an observer, but also somebody who can call out things when they're going in the wrong direction. So is this from a young age you had this burning? Yes, I think so. It's strange. I guess I didn't know how to articulate it. I always knew I wanted to write. Um, And as I got older and realized that you actually have to earn a living too, figured Mm -hmm. out this would be a way to do it. So... Tell me about the stories that first came to your imagination. What was it? What did you first start writing about? Well, you know, I'm Iraqi, but also British. And it's a mix of having grown up with the politics of Iraq dictating my life and the lives of millions, but also going um, to London with my GCSE years and uh, being given tasks to write about Uh, different stories. So I started to write, I guess, at school more seriously. And then when I was at university, I went to UCL in London, and I had professors that really encouraged essay writing. I studied history, but that encouraged also essay writing that was not your traditional just write a student essay, but more dig deeper. And so I think that's when I really started to feel like, oh, I can have a voice in my writing, and mainly about Middle Eastern issues, political issues, um, and a lot on actually American politics too. So what was your first break as a journalist? What was the first job that you got actually paid to be a journalist? Well, after I graduated from university, I was a paid intern at Al Hayat newspaper that I ended up working for for four years before moving to Al Sharq Al Awsat. Um, and now on my third paper, The National. Um, it's been funny. I've always been in newspapers, which I love. But at Al Hayat, funnily enough, the first real story that I covered was that million-person protest um, against the 2003 war. So this was end of 2002. And it was the first challenge I had to really write as a journalist and not to be too emotional about it, but also to do things like try to gauge crowd sizes. And that's really hard to try to figure yeah. out how large that crowd was and, and being taught by a great mentor at Al Hayat how you know you, you take a little square of how many people are, uh, you go find a bridge, you stand on top of the bridge, you envision a square of 50 people, and then you try to figure out how many squares are ahead of you. And I did it several times. I thought, this is crazy, but it actually kind of works. So Shakal al-Sad is an Arabic language newspaper, and you had a job in Washington as well. That's right. So I left Al-Hayat, joined the Sharq al-Awsat. Both of them are Arabic language papers based out of London. Sharq al-Awsat was great to me. Um, the time that I joined it, the editor really believed in having people who may not have all the experience of the world, but have the skills and the curiosity um, to drive it forward. So I was first the London correspondent, then I became the bureau chief in Washington, which is a really interesting time. It was 2009, Barack Obama had just been um, elected, and to go, you know, it was a new administration, to be part of covering a new administration is always exciting. 
And then uh, at the end of 2011, I wanted to go back to London. So they made me assistant editor-in-chief. So suddenly I was doing less reporting and more editing and managing people. Um, and taking care of a newspaper, making sure that the front page gets out and gets out on time. And it was also a very interesting time when we were thinking more about digital side and aspects of a newspaper, how a newspaper in the 21st century can survive is in large part based on its digital strategy. And so I was part of putting that together at the time for Sharq al So today you're the editor-in-chief of The National, which is based in Abu Dhabi, and you've been responsible for its relaunch. What's your editorial stance? I mean, how do you decide what articles to publish? Who's your target audience? It's great being at The National because, again, in this day and age, your reach can be everywhere and anywhere thanks to the great world of the Internet. And so about the relaunch, the idea was that The National is strong because it's based out of Abu Dhabi, which has emerged as one of the most important political capitals in our world, but is also a place where there's a lot happening in terms of trends and the future. You know, the Emirates has taken a very serious stance of wanting to be a leader rather than just somebody who follows what, where world trends are going, whether it's on transport or innovation and governance. And so for us being at the national, we're able to cover both UAE stories, regional stories, but also world trends and where we're going. And that's really the direction I wanted to take the national. And I think we've been starting to do with the relaunch in July. In terms of our audience, it's really people who are either living in the region or interested in the region and want to hear voices that are coming out from the Emirates and the region, but also people who have had some sort of relationship with it. So, you know, our arts or lifestyle coverage or business coverage, in addition to the politics, is all relevant for people who want to know what's going on in the very complex Middle East. So talking about the complex Middle East... You know, back in 2011, there were such hopes with the Arab Spring. And those hopes have been destroyed by the regimes with their counter-revolutions and by the rise of ISIS. Do you see any remains of those hopes? Yes, I do, because I think perhaps some of us were naive and getting excited and thinking that a few months of activity and changes could unravel decades' worth of bad governance of injustices. And so I think it's an ongoing process. And in terms of hopes, there are still hopes in the region. They're very hard to see when day to day we see very bloody headlines coming out from places like Iraq or Syria or Yemen or Palestine or Libya and the list goes on. But there are hopes because people have found their voice. I think even in countries where you haven't had, whether it's revolution or conflict, that are developing and are pushing their own boundaries in in the ways that they can and that works best for them. And I think we're having serious discussions and brainstorming about how can we continue to develop, how can we reverse some of the horrific injustices that do happen in the region. And I think if if you live somewhere or you care about somewhere or you're from somewhere, you can't give up hope. You have to keep striving. Now, it's easy to say when you haven't lost your home as such. I think for some people, especially with the mass movement that we've had of of people losing their homes, their identities, they're going through such difficulties. But in those difficulties, you also see incredible resilience. So speaking of resilience, your family is Iraqi origin. 
and you have relatives from Mosul who lived in Mosul under ISIS. What have they told you about what life was like? It's hard to recount in a few minutes, um, but I guess the feeling that there could be really absolutely no recourse to any form of justice, a feeling that anything could happen at any moment, but also some of the stories that you hear of how people helped each other out. And it really isn't a cliche to say that you see the silver lining, but some of the stories you hear of, and this has happened in Iraq and also with Syrians that I've spoken to, of areas that were besieged and food was a scarcity, how people actually share what little food they have, uh, how they can innovate and find ways to plant vegetables like spinach or aubergine because it will it will work in that environment. And so just the, the resilience and innovation. Um, you've had women take up knitting who had given up on you know the idea of knitting. Um, and that's not to, to belittle what they have gone through and some of the horrors and the terrors they've gone through. But it's, again, to say that it's incredible to see how societies pick themselves up and fight against all the odds to continue. So when you look at Iraq, do you think that peace is ever going to come to that country? It has to. You know, Baghdad was known as Dar es Salaam. It's, it's the land of peace. Um, it's, there are so many interests that are colliding in Iraq, and it's a battle of people with guns, excessive money, I don't think we can ever have peace without an end to the incredible corruption that has really spread like a cancer in the body of of Iraq. And of course, so much depends on what happens in Syria and what happens in Iran and what happens in Turkey. And unfortunately, we're hostages to what goes on in the wider region. But I do believe peace is possible because you see also some of the images that came out from Mosul when it was liberated of people, despite everything, coming together, rebuilding the university as they are at the moment. They held a festival of peace um, where young people went out. And, and, you know, life always is stronger than, than death. And so my biggest concern is losing a generation without education, feeling defeated, and really feeling displaced in terms of their identity. So even for people who were pushed out of their homes and go home, go back to their country or city or streets, may not find themselves again. And and how do you learn to live with a new identity that continues to evolve? Um, It's a really long answer to say, yes, of course, there has to be hopes for peace, and there has to be a time when people can think that they can cross the road without worrying about a roadside bomb or worrying about an airstrike from above. Um, But it'll take a lot of hard work and dedication. And the dedication isn't from the people because that's actually there, but dedication from politicians. And at the moment, it's really hard to see it. Mina Al-Arabi, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me.